Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. On the show today, when you cynically espouse an interest in women's rights, trying to win support for an agenda that has little to do with advancing women, it's called embedded feminism. And we'll talk about a recent example. I don't think that you can be a feminist and appeal to such an administration who thinks that whenever you grab a woman by her pussy, you can do whatever uh, you want to them. And then we'll my tie one on with rum expert Shannon Mustafer. The thing about politicians is that they just care so much about women. Some care so much about female embryos that they want to pass sex-selective abortion bans, which also curtail women's reproductive rights. They cared so much about standing up for vulnerable women, like Monica Lewinsky, that they impeached Bill Clinton, while at the same time throwing her to the wolves. And they care so much about freedom for women that they took on the Taliban in Afghanistan only to abandon Afghan women now that we need the Taliban to rebuild a country we trashed. There's a name for this phenomenon. It's called embedded feminism, and it refers to the opportunistic co-opting of feminism to promote an agenda that really has nothing to do with the advancement of women. The latest example? the Trump administration's actions with feminists in Iran. To tell us more, we're joined by activist Sitara Shohadai. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Saira Rafi. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. Thank you very much. We're here today to talk about, uh, in particular, one activist named Masi Alinejad. Mm-hmm. Um, Sitara, maybe you can tell me a little bit about who she is. Sure. So um, I think she's best known uh, within the Iranian community for a campaign that she started called My Stealthy Freedoms. She's a very vocal person against uh, mandatory hijab. She has lots of interesting personal tales of oppression in that sense. And the campaign of My Stealthy Freedoms actually gathers pictures um, and testimonies from women all over Iran. I don't know which cities are most active in it, who are removing their headscarves in sort of a a space where they they can get away with it. Mm -hmm. And they're sending their pictures to her. Um, So what is problematic about that? A few months ago, she met with Mike Pompeo, and more and more we're seeing, there was pictures of this meeting released, but there's no transcripts, so we don't know what this meeting was about. Um, We would like to know, we're very much interested, but the meeting itself is very concerning for us because there is a series of, of activists and different institutions, think tanks, media channels, etc., which we're witnessing are more and more aligning themselves with U.S. conservative sort of hawkish policies. And they're sort of exploiting really a lot of the democratic movements that have been going on for decades inside Iran, which is the women's movements, students' movements, workers' movements, in order to paint a monolithic, oppressive image of Iran and the Iranian regime, which needs to be changed. So it's pushing a regime change policy through um, implementation of sanctions, which a lot of people are suffering from seriously, and ultimately through an advocacy for military intervention, whether it is by a direct invasion or by arming the Iranian opposition. I think I need to clarify one point. Numerous times, Masyali Najad has said that she does not support a military option against Iran or that she is against sanctions. But our concern, the concern of the people who wrote that petition, was, uh, I guess, in particular that regardless of her intentions, that meeting with Secretary Pompeo is problematic because, first of all, 
that region is devastated by foreign intervention. Iraq had uh, suffered sanctions for many years before it was invaded by the U.S. Afghanistan has been invaded by the U.S. And I think to many people's surprise, uh, Secretary Pompeo last week announced that U.S. is going to put restrictions, visa restrictions, on the members of uh, International Criminal Court who wanted to investigate the crimes of the U.S. in Afghanistan. I think, first of all, the current U.S. administration has no legitimacy when it comes to women's rights. I really don't understand how you could have hope in the U.S. administration to improve the conditions of people in Iran. It's not the regime that is the only victim of these uh, sanctions. And actually, uh, in academia, there has been many researchers on why and how sanctions actually feed authoritarianism and uh, how they actually paralyze the civil society. It's true that she has uh, announced her position against sanctions. But we should remember that this is the same administration that has put the, those sanctions and has withdrawn from an internationally agreed uh, nuclear deal with Iran. And aside from that, since she identifies herself as a feminist, well, I don't think that you can be a feminist and appeal to such an administration whose head thinks that uh, whenever you grab a woman by her pussy, you can do whatever uh, you want to them. And a very important aspect of this is that we know that this administration has made it easier for the employers to cut contraceptives and uh, to not provide contraceptives to women based on religious grounds. To be honest, I really can't understand how, as a feminist or as a, a women's uh, rights activist, you can appeal to such an admis administration to improve the human uh, rights situation in Iran. This is, the, this is an administration that has constantly attacked women's rights inside the U.S. Right. Some might say that Masi Alinejad, who we should note we invited to come on the show and she was unable to join us, mm -hmm. you know, that she is a high-profile Iranian feminist, uh, that she has a platform, that she has gone on the record as saying that she's against sanctions and against military intervention. So what is the harm in her meeting with the administration? And actually, isn't it a positive thing for voices of people who want to I see that you're shaking your head, so I want to come back to you, Saira. Um, that isn't it important, actually, that we engage in these discussions in the halls of power rather than just having it be an echo chamber among hawks. Um, what would you say to that argument? Wow, there's a lot to be said there. Mm -hmm. So first of all, she has taken a stance, but the language is always tricky and it's always very well crafted so that she somehow advocates for political sanctions, but not economic sanctions that hurt the, pe the people. And this distinction was in place already as early as 2006, when the sa sanctions were implemented on Iran. But the reality of it is that actually this predicament is literally what trickles down and, and everybody and all the people suffer from it. So that the distinctions do not have a real effect on actually protecting day-to-day -day lives of people in Iran. And again, the platform is important to have, but the question for us is, what are we paying to have this platform? What are the costs of this platform? Is, is this platform being used, whether consciously or unconsciously, by the U.S. government in order to legitimate policies that have nothing to do with women's rights, right? So 
it's important to clarify, sanctions hurt people, right? And they hurt women especially, because as we know, global statistics always show that poverty, inflation, unemployment hurt women disproportionately compared to men. For example, women who do not have access to independent incomes tend to be at a higher risk of domestic violence, situations of domestic violence. War militarization hurts women disproportionately. For example, we know that in situations of war, risks of sexual assaults and uh, rapes increase dramatically, right? So are we willing to pay this price in order mm -hmm. to take off our headscarves mm -hmm. is a question that I think most rationally uh, based Iranian women would say no. And you both wrote an open letter condemning this meeting between Elena Jad and Pompeo and going farther and saying that uh, women must not be co-opted mm -hmm. um, in the name of military intervention and sanctions. Um, you talk in this letter about opportunist activism. Um, Saida, can you tell me a little bit about what that means? I think what we were concerned about and we called opportunist activism was something that we have seen historical precedents of. Uh, in the case of Iraq, uh, nearly a year before U.S. invasion of Iraq, you could see this, as you mentioned, this concern of American <laughs> officials with the women's rights in Iran. I can see the air increased. quotes around concern oh, the yeah. way that you said that. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, and actually there are some studies uh, mentioning how Iraqi women independent activists had try to talk about the problems of women inside Iraq, but no one paid attention to that to uh, those people. But uh, a year before U.S. invasion of Iraq, you see that, you know, incidentally, all, all uh, U.S. Uh, officials become interested in, in that issue. And it's not just Masih Ali-Najad and not just the women's issue. We have uh, seen other Iranian activists meeting with members of Trump administration. These are all really worrisome to us because we can see that there may be a plot similar to what happened in Iraq going on now, and we are very concerned about that. And not just Iraq. I mean, the, the New York Times ran a piece this past weekend uh, called Women Here Are Very, Very Worried, the here being Afghanistan. And the mm -hmm. subhead is Afghan women used to be championed by almost everyone. Now they're all but forgotten. And we talked about embedded feminism in the intro and about how that's a type of opportunistic activism where all of a sudden people were so concerned about the Taliban's treatment of women. Mm -hmm. And it was used as a justification by um, liberals and conservatives for why we needed to go in post 9-11, take down the Taliban. And now, of course, now that we are negotiating with the Taliban, women's rights are, it's not on the agenda. Um, so yeah, the models are, are pretty similar. So uh, right before the Iraq invasion, you see figures like Ahmad Chalabi and the Iraqi National Council all of a sudden become a kind of a voice of a voiceless, a voice of the voiceless or something that for the Bush administration that justify or keep expressing the evils of Saddam Hussein, which he was, you know, which which we don't have. A, I mean, there's there's no arguing with that. But using human rights oppressions and women's oppressions in Iraq to become sort of a justification for the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. And there's similar organizations that are now doing that, usually expats, usually people who have suffered uh, a lot from the Iranian regime. But nonetheless, it's almost like inviting a much bigger uh, violent problem in in order to get rid of something that we, we should be able to do democratically and independently right. as a country. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about the Trump administration 
why does it have a bee in its bonnet about Iran? Um, you know, we had rolled back sanctions under Obama, and it seems like Trump, Pompeo, Bolton, they all seem to want to find excuses uh, not only to reimpose sanctions, but potentially to intervene militarily in Iran. Um, any ideas about why that is, Zara? Uh, well, I think we know that for sure that people like John Bolton have uh, been calling for a military invasion of Iran for a very long time. Actually, in March 26, uh, 2015, John Bolton wrote, a, wrote an op-ed in New York Times. The headline was to stop Iran's bomb bomb Iran. And Funny he didn't mention women's rights in that article. Huh. Oh, <laughs> no, he won't. Uh, but, uh, and also, personally, I am offended and insulted by these uh, statements by the U.S. administration. Like Brian Hook uh, yesterday at um, APAC conference, he mentioned that Iran is facing the worst economic crisis in uh, the last 40 years, and he was applauded by the audience. So, as an Iranian who has family and friends in Iran and who cares about the people in that country, I am really offended and insulted by such statements. And uh, the thing that is forgotten is that those who are really suffering are the people of Iran. I think every Iranian activist who thinks or wants to meet with the members of the administration should think about all these uh, stories, should think about these statements, and should think about the history of U.S. intervention in the region before meeting with uh, any of these people. Right. So if Alinejad's approach is not something that you guys support, if you don't think that we should be engaged in discourse with the administration or people in positions of power um, who are pro-sanction, pro-military intervention, what is the best way to support Iranian women um, in, in struggles for equality, be that uh, hijab, uh, wearing a hijab if you want to and not wearing one if you don't want to, um, or any other, any other freedoms that they're lacking? So it's not that it's it's not the case that uh, we don't believe in discourse with the administration, right? It's it's just that we don't believe in always looking to them to save us. <laughs> so these are different conceptual paradigms. But I want to sort of flesh out a little bit more of a critical stance to the types of campaigns like my stealthy freedoms that Alinejad operates. And so we see like in the history of Iranian women's women's resistance we see that a campaign like My Stealthy Freedoms, which basically collects images of women without headscarves on social media, there's a shift now. So from, let's say, 79, where women were in the streets, right, in large, massive collective numbers and doing actual work on the ground in order to convince, to protest both against the government and against a lot of the conservative men in the society, right? Sometimes their husbands, sometimes their their fathers, whatever, right? Um, that kind of work is now completely transformed itself into, um, first of all, an individualistic, social media, superficial, and image-based work, which doesn't uh, necessarily tell us of real changes on the ground. Or the real struggles on the ground. Or the real struggles on the ground. For example, you know, pictures on Instagram or on Facebook are without the headscarf are something that all of us do anyway. So how that becomes a moment of political resistance is sort of vague and we don't even know what kind of a political contribution this kind of activism has. Second, I think it's very important is that it's in order to have 
grassroots activism, you need a kind of a diagnosis of where the problems lie. So, of course, mandatory hijab laws are a problem, but they're not the central problem of patriarchal norms in society. So it's actually really interesting because in the case of Ms. Ali Najad herself, she was wearing the headscarf for many years after she left Iran in a country that there are no man in London, right? So in, in the UK, where there are no mandatory hijab laws. But this was because of pressures from her, her own family. So that if you make this struggle about the Iranian government and about regime change, you're actually missing the point that even if the regime changes, are, are these problems are going to be resolved? Or no, do we need to be thinking about socioeconomic uh, categories like the periphery and the city, like economic class, like education, so on and so forth, in order to get real uh, change on the ground? At this point, how to support that? I think um, for the American taxpayer, the most important thing is to be aware of how uh, taxpayer funding is being invested but in a large scale on media that is now broadcasting uh, in Persian, in the Persian language. So You're voice referring of, to Voice of America. Voice of America, mm -hmm. but also Radio Free Europe, um, Radio Liberty, which are now starting uh, a television network. So, so far, they've been uh, the radio that was actually most effective in the fall of USSR, right? It was the sort of liberation channel the American funded. Um, but these monies uh, are being used in order to create a kind of a anti-regime sentiment, which has always been there to some extent, but to exasper exacerbate it in order to get regime change. But this is not going to solve many of the issues in Iran that we're already facing. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today to talk about this. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you, you for having us. In 1933, an enterprising young Texan named Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant opened up a bar in Hollywood called Don the Beachcomber. Inspired by his travels in the South Pacific, he decorated the place with bamboo, fishing nets, and Polynesian tchotchkes, and he garnished his rum-based drinks with colorful cocktail umbrellas. And so Tiki was born. It exploded after World War II as servicemen returning from the Pacific Theater spurred a craze for all things Polynesian. And now Tiki is back with the opening of several high-profile Tiki bars in New York and across the country. The tropical kitsch of Tiki is once again in vogue. But where does kitsch end and uncomfortable cultural appropriation begin? Here to talk Tiki with us is Shannon Mustafer. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be at Brick. So you have a new book out about Tiki. How did you get your start making specifically Tiki cocktails? It all started with rum. So four years ago, or rather five, on April 4th, I became beverage director of Gladys Caribbean in right Crown Heights. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the mission initially was to create the most diverse selection of traditional Caribbean-style rums in Brooklyn, if not all of NYC. I became fascinated with the category from the jump. I had a month to taste through something like 250 bottles and come up with a back bar of 50. And in that process, I saw a diversity of the category. I saw a level of quality that was not widely acknowledged among consumers and even trade. 
And I wanted to show our guests that we were sleeping on rum. I have to preface this by saying that I was resistant to tiki initially as I had had scan experience drinking quality tiki drinks. So you have to bear in mind that this is five years ago and there were no tiki bars in New York. There were some tiki drinks here and there, but due to the lack of quality options of rum, they weren't shining examples of what the genre could do. Right, and I think people often think of tiki and they think of super sweet drinks. That couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, yes, there are examples of those in a canon, but that was never the intention initially. So I learned about this about a year into running Gladys when I went to the first Tiki by the Sea, which is an annual bartender conference and educational seminar that takes place over three days in Wildwood, New Jersey. So it was there that I met Brother Cleve, who gave a really awesome seminar. He's a heavy hitter in the world, not only of tiki and cocktails, but also of tropicalia music, and he tours all over the place and is a bit of a fixture. He's also uh, got a recipe in my book, and I'm so grateful for that. Saw his seminar and realized that Gladys was in the best position at the time to execute authentic quality tiki cocktails. I heard the call and I answered. And Gladys is a Caribbean-themed restaurant that is doing tiki cocktails. But usually when we think about a tiki bar, we think about Polynesian decor. Um, And we're in a moment where we're really asking questions about cultural appropriation and who gets to cook the cuisine of cultures. Can that come from people from outside the culture? Talk to me a little bit about tiki, because I feel like we haven't really discussed that as as a cocktail drinking culture about are the origins of tiki racist? Are depictions of um, Pacific Islanders in, say, like tiki glasses, do we think that those are racist? What do you think about it? Well, I think it's helpful to think about the context of where tiki began. So for those of you who are less familiar, tiki really took off in America following World War II. So you have GIs returning from the Pacific Theater on one hand. You also have more accessibility around air travel for the public in general and a fascination with what was considered exotic at the time. You know, America back then, I would say, was fairly homogenous once you moved away from the coast. And there are a lot of people that didn't have exposure to cultures outside of, you know, being a a Caucasian or white American. And so I believe there's a a sort of innocence in regards to this, and I don't see evidence of anything that was about appropriation per se or making, uh, you know, something entertainment at the expense of another culture. I, I mean, to be quite frank, I don't think that there was enough conversation around this sort of topic back then for it to even be on the map. Right. I think that's true that there was a lack of conversation. And I think one of the things that people say in defense of tiki is that at this point, it actually is divorced from Polynesian culture entirely, that it's really about mid-century Americana. Um, That said, I wonder if there are any of this new wave of tiki bars. There have been like some high-profile openings, as I've mentioned, the Polynesian, for example, here in New York. Um, Are any of them trying to incorporate incorporate authentic, contemporary, Asian Pacific Islander culture? Like, is there a discussion about, I don't know, about maybe like political issues facing, you know, Asian Pacific Island natives um, or anything like that within the Tiki community? 
So I can speak primarily from my experience and what I've observed in my colleagues and how they approach making drinks. Yes, would love that. It's about flavor. Mm -hmm. It's about innovation. It's about creating a welcoming environment. That's what aloha means. It's about what we call ohana spirit. And yes, that is appropriated from Polynesian culture. But the whole notion is that there's a fantasy and there's escapism and there's a way to take the edge off of life. You have to keep in mind that when Don the Beachcomber opened in L.A. in the late 30s, we're still in the Great Depression and hence its popularity for maybe a dollar total. You could forget about your day to day, which was rather dreary for most Americans. And that was the whole spirit behind the choice of culture that was referenced in those environments. And the exoticism is an escape. With that being said, at this juncture, yes, I do see bars incorporating ingredients from other cultures because we have access to ingredients from other cultures. And tiki has always been playful and experimental. And yes, there's a canon, but the spirit behind it is about exploration. And you see that in a way mixologists are, are making the drinks today. And I, I mean, I don't think that people are overly concerned with how those choices will come across as far as appropriation is, um, you know, in play. We're just focused on giving quality to our guests. And you mentioned that there are some old standards, but it is about experimentation and playfulness. What can we expect in your book? So it's aimed primarily at assisting my reader in looking at cocktails from a flavor and ingredients perspective first and to guide you to building a palette and getting familiar with the elements that go into a cocktail so that you understand why you're getting what you're getting in the end. And so you can also anticipate where you're going to get in the end. One of the things I've seen in the majority of cocktail books up until now are head notes that are anecdotal in regards to the origin of a cocktail, or the story of how it came about, which is really important to know. But for the layperson, there's still a shroud of mystery and a level of intimidation in terms of, well, I'm looking at this book and I know what I like to drink, but I don't know if I'm going to like this. And so we wanted to make it more accessible in regards to that. Meanwhile, the layout of the book and the progression starts with what I call the foundational rum cocktails that guide you through the major categories, get you familiar with the flavor profiles. So you have that foundation to go from. And then it's followed by a chapter called the Essential Tiki Drinks, which I consider to be the mother sauces of the genre. And everything that comes from that is an extrapolation on those classics. And they include the Planner's Punch, the Mai Tai, the Zombie, and a few others, some of them more popular, some more obscure. But the templates, the flavors, and the ingredients all play into the, the recipes that follow. Great. Well, um, I'm ready to drink one of those cocktails if we want to move to that. That's the show for today. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Woman to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogsegg, and Antonio M. Rosario. 
It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 